This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Lisa Harrison and Dr. Theda Gibbs-Gray of the Patton College of Education at Ohio University about their research called Black Girls Matter, exploring the school experiences of middle school black girls who have experienced school suspension. They're finding that instead of getting understanding in middle school, black girls instead get disciplined. Dr. Harrison, you came up with the idea, along with Dr. Theta Gibbs-Gray, of doing a, a program called Black Girls Matter, exploring the school experience of middle school black girls who have experienced school suspensions. Now, that's a really long title, but break that down for us. What are you trying to look for in your research? So in the research, we wanted to confront some of the issues with school suspension. So nationally, black girls are suspended more than um, other race ethnicities of other girls. And then also, suspended largely more than boys in general, um, except for Native American boys and also um, black boys. So we really want to focus on kind of exploring, one, what's going on in schools and then also out of schools with black girls um, that might contribute to this overpopulation of suspension that they're receiving. And then also um, kind of give voice a little bit um, to black girls to share from their own experiences um, how they feel, particularly black girls who have been um, suspended. And one of the reasons why the long title is we also wanted to get middle school in there because there's just not enough research that happens in middle school in general. I was going to ask, why Why did you select that? Now, that I assume those would be girls approximately, it changes per school mm-hmm. district, from about 11 to about 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, we all know that's a critical age in, in anybody's maturity, but did you particularly look at that age group? Yeah, so um, 11 to 14, sometimes uh, they're considered 10 to 14, looking at young adolescents. But yes, um, one, there's, again, not enough research in middle school and middle grades, but then two, developmentally, um, where young adolescents are of this stage of becoming, um, this notion of, it's, it's that loss group. If you think about society in the way society thinks about young adolescents, it's this young hormonal raging <laughs> young adolescents who you just can't control and you can't, you can't do anything with them. Um, but from my perspective, uh, particularly as a former middle school teacher, I think it's the best age group <laughs> to work with. It's kind of like that last frontier to get them before 
um, why you can still get them, basically, why you can still engage with young adolescents. They're still receptive to adults, even though there's this myth that they aren't. Um, and they're starting to think more critically about themselves and the world around them. So I think it's just such a great opportunity um, to tap into their potential at that age. And then also research shows that um, when you look at um, school suspension and then also you look at this notion of the school-to-prison pipeline um, that people talk about, it also shows that looking at tapping into middle grades, looking at um, suspension rates of middle school girls, looking at attendance record of middle school becomes a time that's very critical in kind of preventing some of that um, trajectory into um, high school dropout and then also looking at the connection between the juvenile system as well. Dr. Theta Gibbs-Gray is also in, involved in the project, and uh, Dr. Gibbs-Gray, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish beyond the research? I know that research is the primary focus for both of you being scholars, but you're doing some experimentation in Ohio, correct? Yes, yes. And thank you for the question. In answering the question, um, Lisa and I think about this all the time, that for both of us, we see ourselves as researchers who are very attached to the community and especially attached to um, just improving the lives of students of color, specifically black girls in, in this particular uh, research project. So what we are hoping to do is to not only, as Lisa said, gather more information about their experiences, because the narratives that are often in the media about black girls are very negative. They're portrayed as loud or aggressive, and they're not allowed the opportunity to just be human and be middle school girls, is that in addition to um, having them to tell their stories on their own terms from their perspective, we also wanted to implement a mentoring program. So each week we are in um, a middle school, public school um, in, a, in a major city. The same in Ohio. one. You've the designated one. one. Mm-hmm. It's okay. the same one. And we, work- and we don't want to identify that because of the confidentiality of the girls. But it is in a major city in Ohio. It is. It is. And the study is still ongoing. So we began in September with the beginning of the school year. So as we thought about this model, we said, well, what would it be like if we started in September and ran through the entire school year and went until June? And we came into the school once a week week and offered a mentorship program. So we have a group of eight girls. Uh, We started off with four seventh graders and four eighth graders. Those numbers have since changed, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for 50 minutes during a free period that the students have, we come in and we focus on identity development, self-esteem, critical reading and critical thinking, helping them to complete their homework or to do refresher lessons in some of the subjects that they need help with. And it really is an opportunity for them to talk about and problem through some of the things that have been happening to them in school and outside of school. We've also implemented field trips. So, so far, we've brought our girls to Ohio University for a campus visit. Um, We've taken them to dinner just for social activity. And we're planning to take them to the Freedom Center in Cincinnati um, just to expose them to more black history and another campus visit 
um, later on in the semester. That's so, the center that hi- highlights the Underground Railroad. Yes. It's not only that, but it highlights that. Yes, yes. So we uh, the purpose is for the, for us to give them an outlet to do social things and to um, explore them to for to some of the things that they may not have been explored, uh, that they may not have explored. Some of them have been on campus visits, mm-hmm. and some of them have not. But it's just an opportunity for us to just expose them to as much as possible. Okay, so either one of you, just jump in, but how did you, Lisa, you you talked about uh, this group of girls, not this particular group, but this age group mm-hmm. and ethnicity. Uh, they get a higher degree of discipline mm-hmm. than others. Um, why is that? Or is that one of the ultimate questions you're looking at? What's the preliminary research say? Why, why, why is that? Yeah, I think it's it's complex. Well, I'm sure it is. That's so much of life, but I think a large part of it is um, a couple of things. One, these girls unfortunately have experienced a lot of trauma in their life. Some of the girls, and I think um, schools um, are not prepared as well as they should be to support students who experience trauma. Um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, the girls' reactions to um, to things tends not to be the best, probably. tends to be problematic for teachers. So instead of looking at the root of maybe um, an outburst in class and trying to figure out what can I do to support this student socially, emotionally? So to prevent them from acting out in a particular way, the result is just I'm going to punish them. I'm going so to discipline them. people are, just to shorten this a bit, people are, uh, are addressing what they see as the symptoms. They're not going back as the cause. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're addressing the outburst, the outburst and yes. not the reason for the outburst. Mm-hmm. Or, or what might have conditioned that young woman to have an outburst in that particular way. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a, a large problem um, with some of the schools or some of the things that we've been seeing at the schools. But then also nationally, you see that as being um, part of the problem as well. Your study in your Ohio school, uh, do you see that as a microcosm of, of what is happening nationally? We do, actually. Um, so there are um, some very important women who are en- women and men who are engaging in this work, but I'm sure you're familiar with Monique Morris. She's the author of School Pushout, and she began this work several years ago because of these stories, these recycled stories that are unfortunately the same across states and across urban cities in many ways. So Lisa spoke to this, but nationally, you know, black girls are almost six times more likely than white girls to be suspended for the same things, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes people say, well, maybe they're doing something different. Maybe what they're doing is more... Um, is is more aggressive, but it's not. This is actually looking at for the same um, incidents 
So we're asking, well, what is happening? And Lisa spoke to this a little bit more, but which is why it was troubling for us is that in many of the spaces that we've been in and colleagues who we've talked to inside schools where there are large populations of black girls are saying the same saying and seeing the very same things, which let us know that something has to happen, you know, not just on an on a national level, but inside of schools, inside of you know, the cities that we are researchers or live in, that something needs to happen on a, a smaller and a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So. And I want to just build on that for sure. a second. Sure. So this notion of, like, there's a spectrum of from trauma to just regular offenses that black girls are um, criminalized more for. But um, Jerome Morris also talks to this notion that thinking that are looking at how racism <laughs> comes into play right. as well. So Theda just talked about um, black girls having the same offense as maybe a white male student, but their punishment is harsher than a white male student. So looking at something as simple as um, talking back in class and being defiant in that way. And he mentions that, you know, a black girl who talks back is punished, Um, They might get suspended or they might get detention or referral. But that same characteristic of talking back and talking for yourself is um, rewarded in another student, particularly a white male student. Of Those are strong characteristics of being able to speak for yourself and advocate for yourself. So how in one particular group is punished, demonized, but another group is rewarded. And that's kind of some of when you look at the racial inequities inequities within some of the things that we're seeing and some of the things in the national conversation um, that talks about this whole notion of being overly suspended for black girls um, compared to other race. And if you look at, say, a, a white girl that would do the same thing, talk back, so we keep the gender the same, mm-hmm. I assume teachers sometimes say, well, Susie's having a bad day mm-hmm. or, or, or something of that nature, whereas with the, the young black woman, it is she's being defiant. She's challenging mm-hmm. me. I have to exert my authority yeah, that's, in, in this position. For sure. Those are some of the things that the research indicates. Um, it's just not the, – the suspension rate is just not equally d- distributed. Are you finding in your research, which is to take this to a different level, mm-hmm. are you finding substantiation for the research that you've read in studies and papers? Uh, are you seeing it out in the field? We are, certainly. When we think of um, these scenarios that, um, you know, you and Lisa just talked about. So one of our students, when we asked them one day to talk about how they believe, what are their perceptions of their teachers and how do their teachers perceive them? And several of the girls said, well, you know, we largely have positive experiences with our teachers, but they felt like they've experienced um, a, a white male teacher who picks on the black girls in the classroom and not white students in the same way. So that if there is um, a black girl who has her head down in the classroom, it's perceived as very different than if there was a white student in the classroom who had who had our head down, had their head down. And it's it's also just about even if there's no comparison group, how teachers are responding. So for one of our young women, she raised her hand and 
she wanted to ask a question. Now, granted, she has had altercations with teachers and she often um, she often gets into it sometimes unprompted with the teachers. But she raised her hand to ask for help. The teacher ignored her from her perspective, so she put her head down. The teacher then said, there goes so-and-so being a loser again in front of the entire classroom. Wow. So for a middle school girl, regardless of race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, you are going to completely check out or counter and protect yourself because that was an attack. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. It got her sent out of the classroom. She eventually got put out for a couple of days because of what ensued after that. So her articulation is that in those situations, she's not only being attacked, verbally attacked, but she feels like the response is very different than other girls in the classroom who may have, have reacted in the same way. Do home conditions or environmental conditions, are they any kind of causality for this kind of acting out? I, maybe that's not the right word, but but the kind of behavior that that prompts – uh, somebody to to overreact. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is very complicated, and we try to be very careful, you know, each day when we debrief to talk about what has happened because inevitably they share a bit more about what has happened at home. Right. And really this goes back to the notion of we're certainly not blaming teachers or schools, that it is very systematic, that it does have to do with well, and this is also not to portray our girls through pain narratives. A lot of the research says sometimes black girls or students of color are talked about through their pain or what is missing. However, for some of our girls um, who may be in foster care or who may be raised by a grandparent, they do express that there are certain things that are happening at school at, at home or if, you know, there are parents who are searching for jobs and don't currently have jobs, that can have several other consequences that impact the resources that they have at home, what they have access to, which does spill over um, in, into school. There are so, stressors. Yes, there are stressors. Uh, 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 that, and as, that, that may prompt. As Lisa said, there are different forms of trauma. So they experience trauma in many ways in school, but society is also traumatizing them in, 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 in other ways. So um, it is important for us to think about, well, what is happening at home again? Sometimes black parents are criminalized and oh, there's yeah. this narrative that mm-hmm. says, well, the reason why they're having trouble is because of their parents. And it's, it's not that simple. It's what is what is happening. What was the educational experience of parents? You know, how were they, were they positive or negative? Do they have access to jobs? What are the community resources that are available in their communities, all of these things are impacting what happens at home and at school. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. 
In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You're working with these eight young women. Do you talk with the teachers? Are you getting interesting results from your teacher conversations? Or are you getting sort of, could you have written the script before you talked with them? <laughs> Is it stereotypical? Or, or has there been anything that you found, oh, that's really interesting? Yeah, I think it, it depends on the teacher that you, that you ask. I think um, some of the teachers are very supportive. And, you know, they talk to just how at lunchtime, instead of them just eating lunch, they invite students to come to their classroom um, to do work. But I think some of the teachers, unfortunately, have very deficit perspectives of students, particularly students, our students, at least the students who we work with. Um, So I think regardless of how a student might try to change their behavior, I think once some of these teachers, unfortunately, have this, it's like stuck. <laughs> like, I just have this perspective uh, of a student. And a student gets branded. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Troublemaker, yes. mouthy, uh, whatever the situation, right? Yes. And it's just hard for that student to to come out. And one of the things that I say, particularly as a teacher educator, when I'm working with my pre-service teachers, I say, you know, one day you might have an altercation with a student, but tomorrow needs to be a new day. Tomorrow, as a teacher, we're the adults in that situation. You have to erase that board, right? We do. We do. We have to say, you know, one of the things I would say to some of my students is, ooh, today wasn't that great of a day, but tomorrow's going to be awesome. And I can't wait to see you tomorrow. And sometimes you have to rise above yourself, but that's the duty of a teacher. And unfortunately, some teachers don't kind of have that same philosophy. It's um, for one or two of the teachers, they mention like, oh, I'm pretty sure this person is going to be a middle school dropout. And it's like, it's middle school. <laughs> like, how are you <laughs> resigning someone to be a middle school dropout? So kind of shifting these perspectives is is hard um, with some of the teachers. And other teachers, are I mean, they're really great and supportive in multiple ways. And I do understand it's complex to be a teacher, particularly in high accountability, standardized testing when you're measured on that. And you're dealing with um, maybe some students who are slightly, who have, first of all, students who are academically behind, some of our students who really struggle um, with academics. So understanding how do you support those students as well who are academically behind becomes part of the issue two in the classrooms that you're seeing these systemic issues unfolding. And, and those started, what, in elementary school, way in preschool? I mean, the, those academic deficits sort of started and grew sometimes? Or? Yeah, I mean, some of them have. Some of them, I mean, I would say one of our girls is a great example of a transition that happened when she was in middle school. In elementary school, she received a lot of academic support. When she came to middle school, she felt like she was kind of academically behind and she felt that her teachers weren't providing extra support for her. So her way of of agency and advocacy is, 
okay, you're not going to support me, then I'm going to be problematic <laughs> in this classroom. Um, but a little thing of just providing extra support academically for this particular student, I think would have totally changed her her disposition um, within particular classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are times, so part of it is that we actually go into the classroom for her. We intentionally sit right next to her. And when we do, she said things like, oh, you know, Miss Theta, Miss Lisa, now I have to do my homework since you're here. You know, you're sitting right next to me. You're going to make me do my work. And we do. And she doesn't see it. She might huff, but she doesn't see it as problematic because at the end of the day, she recognizes that we are there to help her get her work done. And this is not to say that there aren't other people who, you know, can't support her, but we've not had the same interactions with her because we are not her teacher. We don't see her in the same way. But when she sits with us, she's able Mm -hmm. to do her work and process through her work. And there have also been narratives about her reading abilities. And as a literacy professor, I do see that she has areas for growth. But when she starts reading, she is actually, you know, pretty good when she reads. So it's also, you know, just having a different set of eyes and a different lens um, and and working with her and some of the other girls. Some studies have have said that, um, and I'm oversimplifying, so bear with me, but have said that acting out in inappropriate ways is a cry for help or cry for attention, or both. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're finding is true or not true? In in some ways, yes. So for the student who um, we were just talking about, it is definitely a cry for help. So she will very explicitly tell you when we've asked and said, you know, what will it take? How can we help you to get better? What is causing you to respond in school in this way? And she will say, I keep telling everybody I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. So in the absence of help, she um, she may um, get kicked out of the classroom for something that she has said to the teacher. She may curse at the teacher. She may do something to remove herself from that space where she feels like she's being harmed or not provided with what she needs. So yes, we do in many ways. And she has explicitly, and this doesn't happen all the time because not all the girls have articulated what's happening with them in those ways. But for her, yes. Mm-hmm. You noted in some of the material that I've read that uh this issue is true of uh, students of color, of uh, emerging bilingual students, and the LGBTQ community of the middle school age. Do you find all three of those being equal? Or does race trump the others? And if it does, why is that? Yeah, I I don't know if I could say race trumps the other. I think a large part of it is just not having social-emotional supportive spaces for students. So I think that for LGBT students – who um, GLSEN, who does um, research on 
LGBT students, if yep. youth experiences in school, they say that um, middle school students and high school students who identify as LGBT have felt schools to be a hostile, hostile space from not just their own um, peers, but then also from um, school staff as well of hearing disparaging or um, homophobic comments in schools. So again, coaches. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So when you go to school, that's not a supportive space. One, it leads to attendance issues because who wants to go? Who wants to go to school when um, it's not a supportive space? But when you're not in school, that means you're not getting your academics. So what happens from what was just maybe emotional, social space of hostile space also leads to academic declinement because you're not getting the education that you need. So it compounds in multiple ways. Um, So I I don't know if I could speak towards, again, which one is greater, but statistics shows that LGBT youth um, and then also English language learners mm-hmm. also experience and also students um, with disabilities okay. um, also experience a significantly disproportional amount of school suspensions as well. And for us, what we see and we look at these um, intersectionality, so the, they're intersecting identity. So Patricia Hill Collins talks about mm-hmm. this notion of a matrix of oppression or systems of oppression. This is going back to a question that you asked about home and school is that these there are these systems that are converging and working together. So if you are a black girl, if you are from a family um, that has um limited access to financial resources, if you are also in foster care, if you are also an emerging bilingual, if you are also on an IEP, all of these things are converging together, um, which makes it very complicated, but they are things that we do need to pay attention to. So when we think about, when Lisa talked about this idea of trauma, Black girls represent, I think, just maybe 20 percent of girls who are in the foster care system, but over 35 percent of girls who are actually shuffled around 10 or more times in a residential placement. So if you think about that, it's impossible not to bring that with you to school. When you see that you that something is happening to you, it makes you question a number that of things. That you can't control. That you can't control. So we actually did, we try to do many surveys with the girls. So one of the statements on a Likert scale, strongly agree to strongly disagree. One of the statements was my life matters. Many of the girls said, yes, I strongly agree my life matters. One of our girls who was in foster care, who is, um, they are all amazing and bright and we love working with them she checked on the Likert scale we didn't get a chance to talk with her but as she walked away unprompted as she walked away she said "Um, Miss Dita and Miss Lisa do you want to know why I checked what I checked and she put strongly disagree to my life matter she said if my life matters all these things wouldn't be happening to me right my life wouldn't be this way if I didn't have all these negative Mm -hmm. experiences to share so yeah if you think how complicated that is as adults how do we deal? <laughs> like we we struggle as adults dealing with things, but now well, we have just moving is one of the top five stressors yes. for adults. <laughs> yes, across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you imagine a twelve year old who's dealing with this, and then you also foster care. You think of abandonment issues, abandonment issues, and all the other things that comes with being in a foster care system, and asking this twelve year old to come sit down in class, open up a textbook, and not exhibit any type of 
other things than sitting down reading and academically just being successful. It's not to say that it's not possible, but we need to think about some of the really life issues that these girls are experiencing as well. And to me, it's miraculous that you wake up in the morning and you engage and you get on a school bus and you go and you're doing work. And I think sometimes we don't even give our girls enough credit for Mm -hmm. just the resiliency that they have to to manage. And, you know, I I have this conversation. I'm like, as adults, we really would struggle. We would be in counseling. (laughs) We we would. And if you think about I always do this parallel to workspaces. If we had our boss telling us to sit down, be quiet, speak to me when I speak to you. Like, we, we wouldn't go for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we would protest. Don't ask questions. <laughs> and raise your hand. Yeah, <laughs> raise, raise your hand. Raise your hand before you go to the bathroom, man. I mean, I understand the need to have certain forms of rules within school spaces, but we need to rethink about are these rules that we have, are they supportive? Do they have real purpose? Um, how are they helping our students grow? Just prob- think about they're that. probably some of the same rules that I had <laughs> <laughs> centuries ago. Yeah. They probably haven't changed. Some of our education models really haven't changed for fifty or more years, mm-hmm. right? They remain the same. Yeah, so, so last question, and that is, you're you're doing this research. You're doing a microcosm with an Ohio school. What's the next step? You know, are are you going to come out with recommendations for teachers, recommendations for schools? Where do you think this will take you? We, you know, we still we're we're thinking through that, but we want it to have a positive impact on different levels. So we do want to come out with recommendations for teachers and administrators, superintendents, parents, community agencies. We have just recently started to work with members um, who are attorneys of the mm-hmm. of the legal profession to help us to think more about legally what does this mean for the writing of school disciplinary policies and how they are enacted. So it has an impact on so many different levels that we hope it will just add to the work that has already been started to have more of an impact. And sooner, you know, we always trouble this notion that we tend to say change takes a long time. It, you know, it's an uphill battle and it takes a long time. But we have to shorten the amount of time that mm-hmm. this change is happening because it's negatively impacting the lives, you know, of our girls, of our amazing bright students who are just as as, as amazing as any other student. But the world sometimes is, is missing how amazing and bright they are. Is so. it worse now than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago? You know, I don't know if I can say I think that we are paying more attention to what is happening. So I may not be able to say, you know, if it is worse or better, but there has been um, a silencing of the narratives of black people and communities of color and certainly silencing of the voices of black girls. And I think there are more venues now that are saying, but we want to hear Mm -hmm. their voices. We need to hear their voices. So we are more aware of what is happening. And I was saying in regards to school suspension, over the last 10 years, I think the research does indicate that school suspensions have gone down, but the disparity <laughs> that exists, the racial ethnicity, uh, ethnicity, uh, ethnicity disparity is still the same. 
So while things are changing, unfortunately, the inequities <laughs> that are embedded within it are still long lasting. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Theta of this notion that we need to hit multiple spaces. It's a community approach that needs to happen. It's not just a school needs to shift. Um, parents need to also think about how can I support my students better? And we also need to have conversations of how do we educate parents? I mean, the thing about the parents, we talked about home a little bit. These parents love their kids. They want the best for their kids. But unfortunately, some of them really struggle with, with our interviews with them of how do I advocate for my kid, particularly if this parent was disenfranchised from, disenfranchised from schools themselves. Schools for those parents sometimes aren't safe spaces. So it's hard to feel like I've had a high school graduation. I'm working with these parents and administrators who are college educated. How do I use my voice in my agency? How do I maneuver the system that unfortunately can give you the runaround sometimes in how to um, advocate for youth? And that's where lawyers come in and, and just community-based grassroots organizations come collectively to talk about how do we support all youth. We think about it, we're just two people. So there are so many other things that we would like to do, but there are so many hours in a day. It's the two of us, and we're, we are, you know, professors. We are teaching. We are doing other things. So there are so many other resources that we could use and that, you know, every school could use to, to best support um, all their students, and particularly black girls. Well, Dr. Lisa Harrison, Dr. Theta Gibbs-Gray, Congratulations on your work. I hope you it goes well. I hope you reach a, a positive conclusion on on all of this. And when you get to the results time, will you come back and talk to us about about those? We'll love to. Most certainly. <laughs> and thank thank you so much, Tom, for providing this space for us mm -hmm. to talk more about and share about the work. This this definitely helps. So thank you. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Lisa Harrison and Dr. Theda Gibbs-Gray of the Patton College of Education at Ohio University about the disparity in discipline in middle schools between white students and students of color. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions about any of our podcasts or wish to make a comment, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N at ohio.edu.